0: In this, our last episode of Season 1 of Music Trails, I couldn't think of a better guest to introduce you to than Stevie Coyle. Stevie joins us from his high-end acoustic guitar shop, Mighty Fine Guitars, located in the East Bay Area in Lafayette, California. Stevie talks about his current touring and music project, both as a solo artist and with his longtime music collaborator, Glenn Houston, that make up the duo The Quitters. Stevie shares his early days of growing up in Southern California, early music influences, joining and touring with the world's smallest circus, as well as his experience with one of his earlier music groups, the wildly successful group, The Waybacks. Music Trail listeners, I am tickled pink to introduce to you Stevie Coyle, who joins us today from his enterprise, Mighty Fine Guitars, located in the East Bay Area of Lafayette, California. Greetings and salutations, sir. Well, hello
1: there. Nice to see you, Mark. Is my hair all right?
0: Your hair looks lovely. Okay, good. It's <laughs> the main thing. <laughs> um, tell us about your uh, your guitar store.
1: Well, thank you for leading off with that. It's, uh, it's all high-end acoustic guitars. I don't know my way around the electric world at all, but I've been around the acoustic worlds for, for a long, long time. I worked at uh, Griffin Stringed Instruments in Palo Alto 20 years ago, and, and it just dawned on me, without rancor or upset of any kind, I thought, oh, I'm done with touring, how about that? I've been doing this for an awful lot of years, and it's, it's fine, you know? It's, as they say, you know, Uh, the life of the touring musician where the glamour just never begins. It's kind of that, you know, (laughs) it's glamorous for the one or two hours you're, you're doing your thing on stage, but the rest of it is kind of a grind, but I loved it. I've always loved touring. I did. uh, I toured as a much younger man with the the world's smallest circus. And we can talk about that later too. But anyway, here I was coming back down from, uh, from the Portland and points North from San Francisco. I thought, boy, you know what? I'm done. I wonder what's next. And the very next day, Believe it or not, it was the actually the very next day my niece called me up, and said, "Well, you know, our little store here in Lafayette, California, our little music store, La Marinda Music, is going to branch out into the enormous space next door. We're taking over the entire building from uh, what had been the Lafayette Health Club." And she said, "We can't use all the square footage that we've got. Um, we're going to parcel out about 500 square feet and turn it into something, as you know, we'll sublet to somebody." could be a squeezy freeze ice cream place, could be a yoga studio, who knows. But you get first dibs, have you ever thought of opening a shop? I thought, well, this is enough to make a, a believer out of a confirmed agnostic like me. And I thought, well, this is probably one of those signs. I said, well, let me think about that. And she said, oh, and by the way, uh, there's a fella in just up the road here in Pleasant Hill who's going to um, be selling off his shop and maybe you could get his inventory cheap. And I thought, wow. Gee, i don't want inventory i don't have to buy inventory i wonder if some of those people that i see every two years at the heelsburg guitar festival which is this glorious festival was this glorious festival in in the uh, north bay i wonder if some of those builders that i've known for years would consider consigning guitars with me and i made a couple of phone calls and they all said oh yeah can i send you two tomorrow you know so proof of concept was there a couple of months later we had built my little space here a couple of months after that, once we got everything completed, I made a little trip over to Atherton, California, which is over on the peninsula, to a very wealthy gentleman I know, who had a zillion guitars. He had upwards of 200 guitars. And he said, well, you know, I had FOMO. As a slightly younger man, I had FOMO. I said, FOMO? He said, yeah, fear of missing out. <laughs> oh, okay. So I bought everything I saw, essentially. And I realized that that's ridiculous now that I'm a bit older. So, you know, I've got a bunch of guitars you can sell if you want. So I drove over to his house and picked up 14 guitars one day. And that was the beginning of Mighty Fine Guitars. And that's almost 10 years ago now. That's wow. going in August. That'll be 10 years, which just is a total freak out for me.
0: Sure. So I is,
1: sure. oh, boy, I remember standing here and a- answering that question. How long you been here? And saying three months. Yeah. And I remember <laughs> clear as day,
0: you know, sure. and that's right,
1: a- here, right next to where I'm sitting right now. Yeah. And that was almost 10 years ago. Wow. It's been great. It's been terrific.
0: Yeah. What what have uh what have been some of your most favorite finds that you've had, assuming that you don't um, latch on and, and keep them permanently for your own collection?
1: Do you mark? I've been very good. I have not bought a single guitar. Wow. In all of these years. And it's because I bought a guitar years and years ago from a gentleman here in the San Francisco Bay Area called Alan Perlman, who fantastic guitars. I fell in love with his guitars once at that Healdsburg Guitar Festival that I showed you about. Well, actually, that was the second time I saw the guitar. The first time was at his house as I was driving through and dropping off a guitar for a friend of mine to get repaired. He said, well, sit here in the kitchen and play this guitar while I'm taking a look at your buddy's guitar here. And he came back out and he saw the look on my face and he said, oh no, you too? I said, what, does everybody fall in love with this guitar? And he said, yeah, pretty much. And I asked him if he would sell it. and He said, no, I really wanna hang on to it. It's my demo guitar. It turned out really, really good. And I said, well, if you were gonna sell, how much would it be for? And he said, well, it'd be for this much. And I said, oh boy, that cooks my goose. Well, okay. But I kept dreaming about that guitar and dreaming about it. And a couple of years later at the Healdsburg Guitar Festival, a buddy of mine spotted me from across the room. And he happens to know that I've, I love small bodied guitars. This guitar has got a smaller body than a lot of people find tolerable. And he waved at me. He said, come here, come here, come here. And I said, well, what, what is it? And he said, just come here, just come here. So I made my way through the sea of middle-aged men in Aloha shirts, you know, at this (laughs) festival. And there it was sitting on the table, just kind of glowing. And I said, oh no, not you again. Oh no. And I played it and I played it some more and I played it some more. And Alan said, you know what, this is clearly your guitar. We'll work it out. We'll figure it out. So he gave me a very, very generous payment plan and... Yeah, I would drop a few hundred bucks in his mail slot every Tuesday that I was home from the road right. and was teaching down at Griffin stringed instruments. Okay. And it was coming back with a fistful of cash and I'd leave some in his place and finally got it paid off. And, but in the meantime, he'd let me have the guitar and play it and record with it. And
0: right. all that. This was great. That's awesome. How about your um, musical uh, background? Uh, did you grow up? Did you have uh, musicians in the family? Did yes, I'm not sure I ever grew up. Okay. Start
1: yes, there were musicians in the family. My my grandmother was in vaudeville. She was a piano player. She played piano for silent movies. Oh wow! And the silent movie operators, the the uh, the theater owners loved her because she never played the same thing twice. She always threw in these little cultural references. You know, they would send along with the film. They would send along uh sheet music and she'd kind of look at it and go yeah thank you very much you know we'll, we'll start with that but then i'll branch yeah. off and do this so it was never the same show twice with bertha at the keys <laughs> yeah so those she was a wonderful musician my mother as well played in uh mandolin orchestras of the 1930s oh. the gibson company in particular would tour around with giant trucks full of mandolins of different sizes mandolins mandolas Mandicellos, bass mandolins, and they would sell whole orchestras worth of musical instruments to high schools. Okay. I have a feeling that's what happened at my mom's high school in New Hampshire, and she ended up playing mandolins, so there was that interest in string music there. Sure. And where it really took root was the kids next door to us. I grew up in Southern California, uh, Arcadia, California, the jewel of the smog belt, as my dad used to say. <laughs> and next door to us was this red-hot band of, of young guys kind of in their 20s at the time. I was about 10. And they played at Disneyland, which wasn't too far away. They'd play in one land as one band and kind of duck behind the Matterhorn and change their outfits and pop <laughs> up in another land as some other band. Yeah. And they were great. And so we'd, we lived in, uh, it really was the jewel of the Smog Belt is true. It was a hot, smoggy area. And this was the late 50s, early 60s, I guess, by this time. And uh, our house had no insulation at first and no air conditioning. So the windows were open all night and this hot string band music would drift in while my brother and I were trying to get to sleep at night as little kids. And it kind of got in there, I think. Yeah. So we were listening to that uh, at nights, trying to go to sleep. And then my dad worked for uh, a radio. My dad was the fella that first took a radio station full Spanish back in the late 50s and early 60s. Okay. So all of the records that no longer, promotional records rather, that no longer fit the format, he'd bring them home. So we ended up with all kinds of stuff. (laughs) I remember, I think it was on the same day that um, the guitar, Adventures Guitar Freakout, and the Beatles played the, or no, the Alvin and the Chipmunks played the Beatles hits. (laughs) Came home on the same day. And so that, we said, we want to sound, we want to make those noises, you know. (laughs)
0: Absolutely.
1: Oh yeah, and uh, so we we got our little. My mother was all for it. She, you know, having been a mandolin player,
0: sure, uh,
1: she was all for it. And she bought us initially a little plastic ukulele, one of those little styrene plastic ukuleles. Yeah, from a it might have been a prize at a at a gas station for all we know. Yeah. You know? and it uh it had a little box that strapped onto the fingerboard that would play the chords for you you just had to press buttons and it would play the okay. chords and we thought yeah. that's pretty cool and so pretty soon she stepped us up to the guitar version of that m&e i think these were m&e toys actually with nylon strings couldn't keep them in tune but we loved them and then uh on St. Patrick's Day 1966 she came home with two awful stella steel string guitars they were the last two out of an enormous batch that were being sold out of the drugstore downtown arcadia as i recall one of them wasn't even didn't have wood on the top you could reach inside and feel the fuzzy bit it was it was masonite huh. these guitars were made out of masonite they were terrible and the strings of course were you know an inch and a half off the fingerboard really hard to play but we had our little books that Mama had gotten us
0: yeah
1: and so we went next door to talk to davy was one of the guys in the in the band next door and he was hilarious. He had made funny faces. He could do impressions. He was always nice to us kids. And all, all those guys were, but he was he was our favorite. Uh, the And the host of the place was a wonderful guy as well. The The older brother of my f- friend from, from next door. These two great guys. We took our guitars next door and said, you know, Steve, Davey, we can play our C chord and our G7 chord just like in the book, but that F chord, oh. which has, yeah, see, oh. there you go, Mark. You know. No, I do know. The aptly named F chord, you know, that has scared more people away from guitar than anything because people would, you know, they'd get their guitar book and like us, and they'd say the first page is tuning, which is a non-trivial event still, you know, 50 plus years later, tuning is still a thing you got to know how to do. And it's until you know how to do it, you can't do it. And it's not a satisfying experience. So that was, that was page one of most of these books. Page two was the key of C which makes perfect sense on piano because you get to play all the white keys yep. on guitar. It makes no sense because the second chord you're going to bump into is the F chord, yeah. which is going to scare you away. So if you weren't scared away by tuning the F chord is going to scare you away. So Davey next door there said, well, no, you're not going to be able to play that F chord the way they show you in the book. You're going to have to do it like this with your thumb hooked over the top and and uh, grab it really hard and and uh, play with a capo at first and all of this stuff. And Davey was David Lindley who's, you know, one of my favorite musicians still.
0: Jackson Brown. Brown, Brown,
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 And he he and I have become kind of pals, you know, over the years. I saw him at a festival. The Waybacks were playing at a festival in Edmonton, Canada, as I recall. We were on before he was, of course. And after the show, I was standing in line to get my CD. I bought a CD and I got it. We're going to get it signed. And he looked at me and kind of squinted and pointed and said, hmm, and I quoted that the, at the address of the place where he had rehearsed years and years next door to our, to our house. And he said, you were one of those two little kids from next door. And I said, that's right. And it's because of you, pal, that I'm standing here right now and playing with the band up on the stage there at this festival. And uh, I've seen and him uh, several times since then. He's always, always a great fellow. I got to warm up for him once as
0: well. Very so, cool. So let's talk about the circus. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I'm always on. up for that. <laughs> I haven't had a guest on that has, that's had any circus experience.
1: Well, this was the, the world's smallest complete circus called the Royal Liechtenstein circus. And i I'll bet some of your listeners saw us at their college back okay. in the seventies uh, and eighties in particular, through the nineties, through some of the nineties, it was uh, a little tiny show that would play often at lunchtime, really geared for college kids, kind of fast and funny and topical. And lots of teasing the audience, horsing around with the audience. Uh, But with circus skills. Uh, When I was on the uh, various parts of three different tours, three national tours, and the thing kind of went backwards. It uh, went up north in the winter and south in the summer. So we had the worst of every kind of weather imaginable. But it was great adventure. And we averaged about 200 miles a day driving. Play night, like I say, most of the colleges and universities, with some shopping centers, which were never tops and fun, or, or city parks. Sometimes people would see this little step, and they think, "Oh, a show for little kids! I'll bring every little kid I know." And the little kids would look at us and go, "Why are they talking so much? Why aren't they doing more funny things?" We were very talky, very you know, chatty, very conversational with the audience. A lot of a lot of horseplay with the audience. So that was uh, that was of. Uh, uh, the best training anybody could have had for any kind of show business it really was so good the the fellow who ran the show was a jesuit priest actually named nick weber and i fell in love with the show at my college santa clara university where they would typically end up this the uh, the whole tour that was the last show of the the entire season every year and everybody took off that noon time for the in the mission gardens beautiful beautiful spot And everybody, teachers and students alike, would take off and watch the show. It was just there was no point in trying to run a class when the when the circus was in town. Right. So I fell in love with it there, and I spoke with uh, him after the show. I felt a mutual friend introduced us, and I spoke with him after the show and said, "I want to do this. I really want to do this." And he said, "Well, I'll let you know. You know, probably the next year altogether." He says, "I think I have this upcoming year all set up, but the next year we'll put you on on deck for that." But then I got a call a few months later. Uh, While I was working at an alarm company with these, it was a cinder block building and we would keep track of people's alarm systems and check them in and check them out on punch cards. You know, two sisters ran the joint and uh, they both, each one smoked more than the other in this tiny little cinder block room. And I think these were Marge Simpson's sisters. (laughs) They would remind you of nobody so much as as Marge Simpson's sisters. And they were, they were great. I got this call. At the alarm company, as I recall, because my girlfriend at the time got the call at home and she said, she referred, she said, please call him at work. They'll they'll let him take a phone call for a second. So I took this phone call and he said, can you leave tomorrow? (laughs) I said, well, I think I have to give them two weeks notice here. And he said, well, do what you can Um, call me right back. So I talked to them and they said, well, we can give you one week. They were very kind. They said, give us one week to replace you, which would be easy. Any, any breathing thing could, could do what I was doing at the time. And uh, Nick came back down. One of, the, one of the people in the show had gotten sick and um, had to come off the tour. And the show was only three people at that point. So there was no way to run the show with just two people. And so they came back down and rehearsed in my backyard in San Jose, California for a week or so. And then I think it was a week to the day from the day he called, I was back up doing a two-show day in Corvallis, Oregon, at uh, whatever college is up there. And then the tour continued from there. We'd go up through the Pacific Northwest, across through the Dakotas and the upper Midwest, all the way east, off to New England, and then come back through the middle of the country and kind of the the reverse of that uh, during the summer months going through the South and back through the, through the Midwest. And it was fantastic. I was on parts of three different tours wow. and it was, it was just fantastic playing some music, but mostly doing, um, you know, uh, various years I did different things. I did uh, wire walking and uh, sword swallowing. Oh my um, gosh. Uh, juggling. Uh, I had a trained house cat act, which was probably my, my claim to fame. I think <laughs> at the time there were only two trained house cat acts in the world. It was me and some guy in Russia i had uh i had to let the house cat act go well it had let itself go the cat i trained him up all summer at this our, our summer quarters because we didn't have winter quarters we performed so we trained in the summer it was in santa barbara california kind of bikini capital of the world and there i was a young guy in my 20s training cats in an air-conditioned garage <laughs> up up in the hills someplace hidden away at the jesuit novitiate there actually in uh, just south of Santa Barbara. And I finally got this act trained up and they did They did a little balance routine, walking across the tops of bottles and they would jump on cue and did a little synchronized Liberty Act, they'd call it. If there were horses, you'd call it a Liberty Act. And it was great and we were all having a great time. Got out on the road and within the first couple, three weeks, one of the kiddies just wasn't having fun anymore at all. I thought, I'm not gonna put you through this. So we left him through with a, a family in, I don't know, where were we at the time? Montana, maybe, Idaho? North Dakota somewhere. I thought, this is great. I can make, I can make this work with two cats. And then the other male suddenly started getting very aggressive and, and kind of snarly. And he wasn't having a good time at all. I thought, I think he's ill. I better take him to the vet. So we had a friend on the route there that was a veterinarian. I took him in and uh, he said, well, sit here in the waiting room. I'll let you know what's going on. He went back in the examination room and he came back out. He was weeping. He was laughing so hard. I said, This is funny. This kitty's not having a good time at all. He said, you had this cat fixed, right? And I said, yeah, I took him in myself. He said, well, he was packing one on you. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, he had an undescended third testicle. (laughs) I thought, what a great band name. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He he said, this cat is never going to be a good performer. It's never going to be happy on the road at all. as much attention you give him and, you know,
0: yeah, he just couldn't get over that third testicle
1: family. Couldn't get over that. So, so we yeah. left him. He took care of the third testicle, but we left him with another family in wherever that was, Illinois, maybe Iowa. So I was left with the one kitty who didn't do much, but who was desperately cute. She was just a sweet little kitty, and she just loved to to be rubbed and hugged, and she was just a little purr monster. And so the the act turned into me. It was like 10 minutes of me trying to get this kitty to do anything. <laughs> And it was a much better act than it was the, the thing I had trained all summer for in Santa Barbara. And it, that, that was, and the, the, big blow off of the act was me had two pedestals out there and trying to get the kitty to jump from one pedestal to the other, finally, it was pretty much most days, never knew it was me leaning one pedestal across to the other and having the kitty walk through a flaming hoop, you know, <laughs> where the upper part of the hoop was flaming. And that was the big blow off of the act. Hey, blow the whistles and start the next act that music would come in. Yeah. Wow. It was a great time. The circus
0: was that's, just terrific. That's awesome. Tell us about the, the Waybacks.
1: That was a band started by uh, me and a fellow named Chojo Jacques and Glenn Pamyonik, who goes by Glenn Houston nowadays because nobody can pronounce his last name. Okay. So the three of us started, started that. I had done some, uh, I was playing solo at the time. And Chojo was a great side man, playing viol- uh, violin and mandolin, mostly, and singing harmony vocals and whatnot. And he had, not, had done some kind of duo stuff and thought, well, this is pretty fun. This is, this is going along really good. And he, he said, well, you know, I play with this band called Large and in the Way that's a bunch of either tall or really big guys. Um, why don't you come and sit in with us some night up at this place? Uh, you know, it was really kind of a bucket of blood bar up there in the mountains. And said uh, you can sit in it's nothing too complicated just you know you know how it goes you watch the other guitarist watch his hands and just stay off the same part of the neck that he's on just move up or down depending on where he is and it'll be fun so i came i showed up to the gate chojo had neglected to mention that this guitarist not only plays left-handed but upside down <laughs> he takes a right handed guitar turns it upside down and just plays the daylights out of it doesn't flip the strings around at all so I was earballing the whole thing yeah exactly (laughs) my words almost exactly (laughs) yeah and so that was the introduction to Glenn Houston who's now my partner in the quitters yeah but the three of us Choju and Glenn and I started the Waybacks, and we're playing you know bars mostly because that's that's what it was and our home bar was um a place called the plow on the Stars which is sort of the navel of the Irish universe in San Francisco and it was a great scene. And the fellow would always book us. And we added a, a bass player and a drummer, the drummer from Large In the Way, and a bass player uh, named Peter Tucker and a bass player named Chris Key, who are just terrific. These two guys were the great, greatest rhythm section in the Bay Area. They kind of shared a brain. They knew exactly where they were in the groove, you know, mm-hmm. and would just propel a band. They were so easy to play with and on top of, you know, as a rhythm section. Fantastic. So we became this five piece. <clears throat> and played at the that's a plow on the stars a lot we walked in there one day and the barman was standing there says nope you're not playing tonight we said what what's happened?" he said you're not playing until you get uh and i won't use the expl- expletive that he used you're not playing until you get a name because i'm tired of answering the phone and people saying who's on tonight and they say well it's chojo and stevie and glenn and peter and chris go get a name and I think he threw a $20 bill at us and said, go across the street and have a, have a glass of wine and come back with a name. Well, in the meantime, I had, gone, I, thought, I had thought, you know, this is going pretty good. Maybe we should start a mailing list. So I'd gone down the street to a bookstore and picked up a mailing list and showed up at the, at the little wine fest we were gonna have before we could even set up to play. So we better pick out a name. Well, the book I had, the blank book I had picked up to be our mailing list had images of, uh, of Bullwinkle and Rocky and Sherman and yeah. Mr. Peabody and the Wayback Machine and Chojo said, "Well, oh, how about the Waybacks?" I thought that'll do for tonight. Great. So we went back and talked to Sean, the barman, and said, "We're the Waybacks." I said, "All right, good, good." So set up and we played and it was great. Well, we didn't know that the San Francisco Chronicle was there that night, and uh, they reviewed us. And so suddenly we were stuck with the name, the Waybacks. It gave us <laughs> a glowing review. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, oh well, God, I always thought it sounded like you know one of those bands that comes out dressed like hippies and they do a sixties set (laughs) and then you come out wearing you know polyester and you do a disco set in the 80s you know the waybacks I thought oh or it sounds like what was the it was a band the way outs from uh cartoon I forget anyway I never was crazy about the name but it stuck and so that's that's how the band started then we did um I was kind of the agent for the band at the time <clears throat> I applied to, uh, this is at the very beginning of, um, email
2: okay. and I thought
1: email is great because people will read my email that would never pick up the phone for me. Sure. You know? So we got all these bookings came in, you know, I'd send them CDs or little demo CDs or whatever they made, Were they the cassettes at the time, I don't think they were eight tracks, you know, we'd send whatever it was in and they'd listen and say, yeah, but we'll book you for our festival. And things were going along pretty good and we thought well maybe we can go for broke here and do the folk alliance the international folk alliance sure which is where the buyers and the sellers all show up and yep. there's you're kind of auditioning for the sellers and it's a big party for a few days this was in vancouver this year and we did really well we got a, a featured showcase and we did really well we got lots and lots of opportunities to play all kinds of places and that was the beginning of the touring band but at that point glenn who was working for oracle at the time he's like a major VP at Oracle, was kind of too busy to tour with us. So we went uh, one night to kind of an open mic thing that happens in this Quonset, I think it's still going on perhaps, at this Quonset hut south of San Francisco. And there was this hot young guitar player, and we said, you know what? You doing anything Friday night? He said, no, he said, you got a gig. Play at the Plow on the Stars. So come on in, that was James Nash. Okay. And in the meantime, Peter Tucker, the drummer, had a gig working he worked with the astronomical society in san francisco he couldn't really tour because all of a sudden we had all these touring opportunities sure. and chris key was a lawyer for the city of oakland and he couldn't tour so we needed to replace those guys and did and that was uh that that was the touring band that headed out on the road so the band that really made the bones was was the uh me and chojo glenn chris and peter yeah and yeah. then the band that did all the touring was at first uh, me and chris and james and joe kyle on bass and uh, a fellow named chuck hamilton on drums okay so it's it's been various iterations and yeah. as it stands now the band is i think i think it's james and chuck and joe and a fiddler named warren hood out of austin yeah and that's the band they play sort of once a year at merle fest they do yeah. a, a big yeah. feature show at merle fest
0: yeah Interesting. So you, you were with them about nine years, right?
1: All told. Yeah. Yeah. The touring band for seven years and a couple of years before that with uh, Jojo and Glenn and, yeah. and the, the other iteration, the original iteration of the band.
0: Sure. Now, is it safe to say, I, I know sometimes people don't like to get into these discussions about uh, categorizing their, their music and such, but for my year, it's such a an assortment and a diverse sound particularly when i listen to those first 3 albums that you were part of recording yeah. i mean there's there's bluegrass there's there's jazz there's blues there's combinations of all three together at times
1: that's right yeah that was kind of the conceit of the band was to play any style of music all, all on acoustic instruments yeah and uh, of course pe- pe- people hear a fiddle at all and they think bluegrass you know so sure, we got sure. kind of in the new grass yeah. genre we were kind of jumped into that yeah but that was the original conceit of the band was doing all these types of music and especially those first three albums right. on uh, on acoustic instruments
0: yeah and so that kind of ran its course for you and then you uh, stumbled on your uh, your current uh, guitar store modifying guitars
1: yeah in, in the meantime i did about five years i guess of touring solo just because i made so many contacts all over the country it was sure. easy enough to pick up gigs at festivals and venues and and the beginnings of house concerts at that point yeah back uh 10 12 years ago right i came off the road 10 years ago for that previous five years i've been doing touring solo pretty much constantly just sure. a lot of solo touring what got to be kind of uh less than maximum fun was always living out six weeks ahead of myself always booking at least six weeks out ahead sure and the touring and the gigging was great in great. the meantime too i had met this wonderful gal that i wanted to spend a whole lot more time with who sure. i married just a year ago two days ago my first anniversary was just a couple of days ago oh congratulations thank you very much i did good i did real Yeah, good,
0: good for you and while you were doing solo, I know you you did one recording, uh, 10 and 1. 10 and 1, right. Yeah, which is an excellent recording. And it's it's very similar to some of the earlier recordings that you did with the Waybacks. Yeah. Like that's Simpler.
1: Ten, 10 and 1 was, um, it was going to be even simpler than that. The The whole idea at the outset was to do um, a nice, polite little fingerstyle guitar record. You know, just solo yeah. fingerstyle guitar. And the producer and I, and uh, Walter Strauss, wonderful guitar player. Holy smokes. My, one of my absolute favorite guitar players, Walter Strauss. Check him out, folks. He's just that good. He agreed to produce the thing with me. He's a dear pal of mine as well. And we recorded the first tune, the first tune that appears on the record. It's a little soft shoe kind of thing mm-hmm. on a uh, on an old national guitar, a real clankety tank sort of sound. And we were sitting sitting listening to the playback and thinking, wait a minute, this might not be. A solo fingerstyle guitar record this might be this might be a concept album because he said do you see a guy I said yeah I do I think this is a theme song isn't it is it really yeah and we both saw the same guy a friend of ours we said it's that guy (laughs) (laughs) and what's his story well the story unfolded from there as did the album and suddenly we had all kinds of great guests on the album Mike Marshall's on there and Kendrick Freeman and golly all all kinds of folks uh, wonderful keyboardists cello there's a cello ended up on there hank mm-hmm. roberts from new york played cello on the thing you know it turned into this whole thematic thing and the story goes if there is one the album came out uh the, well the story goes it's this everyman sort of character kind of lonely heartbroken perhaps hears in the distance some carnival music happening and he rows his boat over there and uh, pops out and goes through the 10-in-1 the 10-in-1 is the name of the the tent on a circus or a carnival lot where 10 attractions happen under the same top okay and so he goes and visits the 10-in-1 has all these little encounters with the various performers in the 10-in-1 and comes out feeling a whole lot better you know it's kind of a little salvation story
0: yeah saved by the circus including the petrified man
1: including petrified man which we'll hear at the end of the at the end of the broadcast of the the podcast here yeah and uh so that that was a, a big surprise it took much longer of course to record than we thought but it all fell into place it was sort of like tetris that old computer game where you'd have to make things fit and it said well this song oh that fits here so the uh, the album turned into this uh concept album uh you know i mean it's a real album it's not just a concept and it turned into this big production with lots of guests and uh, a whole storyline and an arc, which would have been now that I think about it, and I've thought about reissuing it on LP because that's really where I wanted Mm. it to work. Mm -hmm. We could have a big booklet. The original versions of the, of the CD had a beautiful little booklet done by a fella in uh, San Luis Obispo called Jimmy App Roberts. Beautiful. He just caught the idea right off the thing. And all of this stuff fell out in a day. He did the whole, all of the artwork, which is beautiful in a single day. But I thought it would, the intention was to do that large format. And this was before, of course, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago now. It's, those it before LPs had made their resurgence. Right. But it would right. have been great to have the big booklet, really look at the artwork. Yeah. Take a look at the lyrics against the artwork and kind of follow the story we used to do with LPs. And I guess people are still doing it again now. So
0: yeah, very much so.
1: That's, uh, I'm, I'm still, still wondering if that's worth a, worth a shot. I might do it. Who knows?
0: Maybe a potential Kickstarter program for you.
1: A Kickstarter, sure thing.
0: Yeah, people do such things. They do, and are quite successful at it. So now you and Glenn are back together playing the, we the are. quitters.
1: The quitters, aptly named, because uh, he had quit not long before we got together uh, from a band called Houston Jones, which had the original rhythm section from the Waybacks and a wonderful blue-eyed soul singer and a madman keyboard player, Just a, it was a wonderful band. He had made his departure from that band. Here at Mighty Fine Guitars, there's a room in back of my shop that's run by my niece who has the shop immediately next door. It's, we jokingly call it the big room because it can seat maybe 75 people. We jokingly call it that. And Glenn had come to see some one of the fingerstyle guitarists that I was hosting here for several years on a monthly or bi-monthly basis. And my gal Valerie walked up to us and said, you know what, Stevie Glenn, why aren't you two guys playing together? And we looked at each other like a couple of dummies and said, that's a really good question. I don't know why we're not playing together. So we formed our little duo, the, the quitters, and they've been doing great. It's been uh, it's been great fun. And we got, like everybody else, like yourself, we got held up for a couple of years there. but yeah. Now the bookings are coming back and we're doing all kinds of stuff, large and small, really big festivals. And really small house concerts and some of the restaurant venues actually have kind of a listening vibe to them, which is what we're always after, of course, rather sure, than sure, being background music. And we've got a PA system that we can crank up really loud. So it's really hard to ignore us. And that's, I think, part yeah, of the, you know, the, the reason for our success.
0: That's awesome. So in your, in your travels and your, in your journeys, I've got to think that you've come away with a few gems of wisdom some some major lessons learned what would uh, something like that be that comes to mind
1: i think expectations kill just two words you know okay. you can move towards something but if it crosses if it cro- for me if it crosses the line over into i expect something to happen that's where the the whole thing goes off the rails So I think if there's a a nugget of wisdom that has steered me straight for years and years is, you know, plan, uh, move towards things, but don't let expectations overrule the reality of a, of a situation of of the moment because reality is going to win. You know?
0: I like that. That's
1: good. Thank you.
0: Where can people find you, find more information about, about you, the quitters, the guitar store, is there a, place that you could direct folks to?
1: Sure, sure. There's Well, there's three. MightyFineGuitars.com uh, for, the, for the guitar shop. And it's all high-end acoustic guitars. I'm very picky about what comes in here. And I don't solicit guitars at all. Like I said, it's completely a, a consignment model. People walk in. I sit here and I do my email and update the website and change strings and gab with folks. And people walk in with these fabulous guitars. Frequently, excuse me. I'm not playing this guitar for X reason. Somebody should be playing it. Let's move it along. And I end up with really top shelf acoustic instruments in here. So that's mightyfineguitarist.com. I'm a .commy myself, Uh, steviecoyle.com. You can find out where, where I'm playing either solo or with the quitters. And quittersduo.com is where to find out where Glenn and I are playing at the moment, primarily in California, but we'll be branching out into up and down. Uh, Well, we're doing a little bit of stuff in Southern California too, aren't we? And we'll probably take ourselves on another tour up to the Pacific Northwest. But we'll probably stay kind of west of the Rockies for the most part and do some touring just because I've got the shop to operate here. Limited energy for too many far-flung exploits. Sure. But every once in a while, our tour really feels good.
0: I bet. It's got to. So we're going to end with a song. What what song are we going to uh, hear? Petrified Man? Petrified man. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do
1: that. This is one that kind of uh, steered me in the direction. Once we got the original, that first recording done, Mr. Oster's, Mr. Oster's theme. Mr. Oster is our hero. He's our protagonist on the 10 in 1 album. This is the one that I thought, well, yeah, this clearly he's he's going to a, a, a sideshow. Um, he's going to the a carnival or a circus. In this case, I think probably a carnival. And the Petrified Man is one of the characters he meets there. And of course, there's all kinds of meanings that can be ascribed to the term Petrified Man.
0: Awesome. Well, we look forward to hearing from that. And uh, Stevie, thank you so much for the time that you've given our listeners today. It's, uh, it's been great to, to talk and visit with you and I wish you uh, the best of luck.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. It's been a complete pleasure. I really appreciate
0: it. Here's the Petrified Man from Stevie Coyle's solo 10-in-1 album.
2: Mama, you can tell it to your diary Another man done gone, another man done set himself free I took the money, the funnies, the Gibson, and left the TV on A bad dream, a primal scream, a head of steam and color me gone Oh yeah Mr. Thompson, Mr. Cassidy I put a my by Salinas Got a thumbtack and be Let my soul-stealing, devil-dealing Old life go to rust A battle cry, wave goodbye Beat my demons in the dust All alive, all on the inside We got a brother or two I am. We got Tammy from Miami. Oh boy, folks, she's got nothing to hide. We got geeks and freaks for weeks right here, but you ain't seen nothing till you marvel at the petrified, petrified, man. Man, petrified, man. Please, Tammy, Bobby, petrified Man. Petrified Man, Petrified Man. Come the Petrified Man. Petrified I put on some Bobby Dylan so I would not feel so all alone. And the last thing I remember was a ringing on the telephone. Was it Medusa in the backseat? Demons won the last (laughs) heat, and if I can tell you, son, too late to feel the blood congealed. My race is run. He got a stone heart in a bone cage. He's a pigeon perch with a pension plan. He got rockin' Kind of world rage Now he's still he's Folks, a life well lived includes a trip to see the petrified, petrified man Petrified man, petrified man oh, I'm Gonna call you just as slow as he can
1: Sister battle barge says, but for the grace of God, there goes
2: us. Is this still life? Still life? I fret about it night and day. I'm a four-door fossil man. I'm handling in a Chevrolet.
0: his lower limbs completely immobilized by calcification you'd swear on the commandments they were stoned and they were stoned you ask me is he alive i ask you are you alive enough to ask him of music trails and special thanks to our guest stevie coyle this brings to a conclusion season one i want to again thank all of this season's other guests scott henson nathan bliss of barnaby bright dan o'rourke of the woods avery bellotta Susie brown savannah chestnut tracy walton kelly hunt max capistran of damn tall buildings and holly gleason I want to also thank Justin Cox, podcast host for After the Deluge and First Pitch. Justin served as both an inspiration and early on technical advisor. As always, if you like what you've heard, subscribe today for future releases and be sure to tell a friend.